Well, welcome, listeners. We are back, and we are with our good friend, the man, the myth, the fiber, Cotton. <laughs> How are you, my friend? I'm what, doing that's good. Cotton? That's Cotton. That's right. <laughs> what that's the? me. Whoa, dude. It's so awesome to meet you. Big fan. Big fan. <laughs> thank you. It's an honor. <laughs> it's an honor to be on. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Listeners, you can find his podcast at the Dissecting Liberty podcast, and you can find him on Twitter at Cotton Arcist, right? That's correct? Yeah. Cool. So, yeah, I love your Twitter feed, dude. Keep it up. It makes me laugh all the time. I hate it. <laughs> you hate it? <laughs> yeah, I hate it. It sucks. Bruh, I'm dropping fire all the time. Okay, wait. Before we get into anything else, there is one thing you posted, and I want to see if you remember it. Because one of the first things I saw you post when I got on Twitter at the end of the summer and it was something, it was like some face, it was a face of some guy. He was in a Miami Heat jersey and he had this look on his face like, like, you know, <laughs> and you, and the, and the post was something about my face every time I see my dad looking at some woman's Wikipedia page. And this woman was like a, was like a Marxist feminist scholar from like Alabama. Do you remember this? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. I want to try to Sounds find like it, send it to you. <laughs> the face was hilarious. I saved the image. I'll send it to you. Please do. Jog, I, I have no memory, memory of that at all. I was hoping you wouldn't remember it because that makes it funnier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Like uh, when we were at the Ron Paul thing, uh, me and Stratton, uh, we were also there with Zero, my co-host, and uh, we were walking along the beach. And uh, Zero and I were talking, and he was like, oh, yeah, you posted that thing in March that was blah, blah, blah. And I had no idea what the hell he was talking about. Just no idea. And he was like, dude, it got like 300 likes. And I'm, <laughs> I, I have no idea. You got to take it. See, I think, I think the problem with Twitter is it breeds like a low time preference mentality. Yeah. Because like yeah. it's just one post at a time, you know. And like I, I, I worry about like something that's gonna come back and bite me, because I, yeah. I have no idea. I look at uh my total tweets and it's like twenty four thousand something. It's oh it's ridiculous. God. I have no <laughs> idea. Jesus, dude. Well, keep up the good work. You're doing the Lord's work by making me laugh. So I thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Cotton, um, you have been on a on a big Nietzsche train lately. And you and I have had two or three conversations um, uh, personally about this, and I'm really, really interested in it because I remember studying Nietzsche back in college, um, and I, I came from kind of the Ayn Rand influence when I was really younger, and she definitely was influenced by Nietzsche when she was younger. She distanced herself from him, you know, later. Um, but it, it, but Nietzsche is someone I'm definitely interested in and someone who has, I mean, a huge volume of work and said tons of different stuffs. And so I just want to turn it over to you to start the episode. Why don't you give us a little kind of rundown on like how you got into Nietzsche, like what kind of made you interested in it and why do you think it's something that's even worth, even worth talking about? Okay. Um, well, I was always a bit interested in, in Nietzsche because, uh, so here's like my, my philosophical journey. I first got into philosophy because when I was in high school, I was like a basic neocon, 
Republican conservative type kid. And, uh, so like when I, like my family and to this day, there's a bust of Thomas Jefferson, uh, in the house. So we're, we're kind of of that like boomer conservative mentality, like fetishizing the, uh, the founding of the country and whatnot. So I was, I was really interested in that. And I, I really liked the sentiment or at least like the, the popular sentiment behind the founding of America of just like freedom and, 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 uh, whatever. But so eventually through the founding fathers that led me to people like, um, John Stuart Mill and John Locke. And, uh, from there, like those were my entrances into, uh, philosophy but uh, from there, I, I just started exploring the field of philosophy as a whole. And eventually I found existentialism, which I found incredibly interesting because it, it got a little bit deeper than, you know, some of these other things that people would talk about, like with Locke and, and John Stuart Mill. Like once I got into existentialism, all that stuff started seeming a bit uh, superficial but uh, from there, uh, I started working my way back, and I started hearing all these names like Hume and Kant and and uh, Hegel and uh, so forth. But uh, uh, one of those names was Nietzsche, and in particular with the existential tradition, Nietzsche is of uh, particular importance. Um, and I was I was telling this to you the other day, David that I think Nietzsche is one of the first uh, postmodern philosophers. And um, I was thinking about that today uh, when I was thinking about recording. Um, part of that is because before Nietzsche, and this is, this is in line with the Reformation, before Nietzsche, everything was um, in strict adherence to logic and reason. So, and, and I'm, and when I say this, I'm not saying that that's bad because I, I definitely don't believe that to be true, but, uh, you, you have people like Kant, which I'm a fan of, uh, and that's incredibly, uh, common in like the Austrian tradition. A lot of people really like Kant, but you know, it's, it's strict A to B to C logic. You know, you have one, and and that's that's common in in Mises and Rothbard and Hoppe in particular. It's very obvious in Hoppe what he's doing, but um, with like a clear lineage of thought between points. But uh, what Nietzsche did was he would say something. Like his books were always uh, in passages. You know, he had passage one, which would be like a page, and then he had passage two, which might be half a page or it might be a couple of pages. And then he'd, he'd move passage to passage. And what he would do was make these incredibly broad statements. And it, where in Kant or in the Austrian tradition or like in Hume or something like that, you can read a work in its own and understand what he's saying. But with Nietzsche, it's incredibly hard to do that because he makes these incredibly broad statements and it's hard to judge them with 
out the knowledge of the corpus of his work because it's very non-hierarchical in nature. So, um, and I think that was, that eventually led to like people like Heidegger, which uh, kind of rebelled against the, against the analytic tradition, which wasn't fully formed when uh, he wrote his uh, magnum opus Being in Time. But uh, he saw it coming, and it was around in its infancy with people that I've already mentioned, like Kant and, and Hume and, and John Stuart Mill and John Locke and so forth. But um, before that, before like the, the, I would argue the individual revolution, like a, a focus towards the individual person, uh, Nietzsche kind of kicked all of that off. Uh, for the most part. And um, he did that by rebelling against morality as he saw it. So he saw religion as a false morality, for, a better, uh, for lack of a better term. And he thought that it was not sustainable. Um... And so he argued that uh, in the in his age, it wasn't even a choice of rebelling against it. He thought it was over. And I think that's probably correct. You know, and I, I hate to mention this, but because for whatever reason, it, 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 it uh, harms the point nowadays in a popular culture. But Jordan Peterson has done uh, good work on that famous Nietzsche statement that God is dead uh, because, you know, Nietzsche wasn't celebrating it like it's, it's popularly uh, conceived as, but uh, he was warning against it, but he was saying that from that, from uh, like the, the, uh, the cardinal idea of Western religion uh, being uh, dying metaphorically, uh, something better can be, uh, birthed. And, uh, he was also, he warned against a lot of things that, that we're experiencing now, like a similar, a similarly religious devotion to things like science and, uh, other different disciplines, but mainly science. He, he, uh, th there's some particularly spicy, uh, statements, uh, from Nietzsche about hardcore, uh, science respecters, but, uh, he, he, he questioned a lot of things and he, uh, questioned in particular things that made a person, um, think not of themselves, but of, incredibly large group of pe groups of people and uh that and that's why i like them you know because it's it's hard to approach nietzsche from a economic standpoint although i think it's possible it's just harder uh but it's it's easier to approach him from a philosophically individualistic or 
David and I were talking about this the other day, but like a left anarchist uh, position, it's easier to approach him from that because it's not dealing in concrete terms, but, but things a bit more difficult to grasp. And, um, yeah, I, th I think, uh, he, he gets to the, the metaphysical level of individualism where a lot of texts that people in our group don't typically venture into, but, uh, I think he gives a good uh, a good justification for individualism outside of like utilitarian terms, where like a lot of a lot of Austrian school people kind of venture into that that area, where like you know you got to be individualistic for the common good, and and people like Nietzsche and and secondarily like people like Max Stirner or Kierkegaard or whatever, you know, make that point. It's like, no, it's like, don't even worry about that. Cause that's not even under your control. You just got to be individualistic. Like if it, if it's better for all, then it doesn't even matter. Cause like you can't control all. So just do what you got to do. Uh, try not to be led. That's a big thing in Nietzsche. And, um, basic like the the my favorite thing of Nietzsche is like a, a great way to distill his philosophy is like watch out for mind viruses and uh and uh closing this this probably too long monologue uh I got I gotta mention what uh zero my co-host and uh, one of our favorite guests we've had on the podcast, Dexter De La Paz, and I have come up with, which is you got to homestead your own mind. You know, like you got to recognize areas of your mind that you did not, or, or things in your mind that you did not plant there and explore those things and see there and try to find out their origin. And you, you have to evaluate whether it's good that those things are there or not. And that's a very Nietzschean idea. And, and that's why I like him a lot. Nietzsche talks a lot about how, like you said, with mind viruses, he, he talks a lot about how philosophy, or at least all the philosophy that's come up to him and, and his point in writing in the 19th century, were basically ex-post rationalizations of previously held beliefs, right? So Nietzsche, he seems to be really harping on a psychological point rather than a philosophical point. So do you think that Nietzsche do you think that Nietzsche's key contribution is is more like an analysis of, of the psychology of philosophy rather than philosophy as such? Because I think that that would kind of explain why his writings tend to be so fraught with contradictions in one place or another he seems to say things that don't mix or he like you also said he seems to talk in these very broad generalistic terms rather than logically going through things so do you think that's a fair way to characterize him and to think and and would is does that characterization help us to better understand his importance yeah 
Uh, Nietzsche himself considered uh, his work to be like the first works in psychology, which is is really interesting. And Freud considered Nietzsche like the smartest man to ever live. So, yeah, uh, he wasn't a philosopher as such. Um, it's interesting because like so many philosophers before him either tried to find out some truth like that, that was 95% of philosophy before Nietzsche was exploring a route to a truth and a particular groundbreaking aspect of Nietzsche was that he, instead of trying to find a truth, he turned the lens to inspecting the idea of truth itself. So he got, his work was a lot more introspective uh, than people before him. So yeah, I think uh, he was a lot more grounded in a weird way than a lot of people uh, before his works. And uh, I think that's part of the reason he's had so much impact because he kind of, similarly to Heidegger, maybe to, depending how you look at it, to a lesser or to a greater extent, he kind of flips uh, philosophy on its head by asking and attempting to answer questions that nobody had even considered beforehand. And I think it's an example of how important those questions are, uh, like in the field of psychology in particular. Uh, I think it's an example of how important those questions are uh, that Nietzsche has become or is like the one of the most popular philosophers ever. You know, like if you ask a random person on the street, you know, name some philosophers, they might mention Plato, they might mention Aristotle, they might mention, you know, I, they'll they'll butcher his name, but they'll say Nietzsche, you know, they'll say Nietzsche or something, but... Yeah, exactly. Well, I think on Wikipedia, if you go to, you know how Wikipedia has part of a series on this, right? Yeah. They, they have that thing for philosophy, and they have like a row of pictures of philosophers. And I think one of them is Socrates, one of them is Kant, and one of them is Nietzsche. Yeah. Like of like the of like the five or six photographs they chose, they choose Nietzsche. So, you know, whether or not you think he's right or wrong, that just speaks to his influence. Yeah. Um but Strati, you had a you had something you wanted to say? Yeah, I've been taking a lot of notes actually because I don't really know too much about Nietzsche. But um, from everything I'm hearing, I have a few things I wanted to say. Well, Dave, you pointed out something. Uh, you said that you know you thought his writings may be uh, full of contradictions. Um, I didn't. I didn't catch whether you meant that like society sees it that way or p the people who read them. So I want to. Can you clarify that for me real quick? I can. Uh, yeah. He, his writing definitely does have a lot of contradictions. Okay. Cool. Because. That's funny because that reminds me a lot of uh, someone who I actually thought of while Cotton was first speaking, but Pat Buchanan, his writings are full of contradictions. Um, you know, you look at his views, but then his economic views and they just don't mix. 
And, uh, however, I saw a lot of positive reasons, however, why uh, Nietzsche kind of reminded me of Buchanan. And one of the reasons for that was, um, Cotton, you said how, you know, people misinterpret the God is dead statement and how uh, really Nietzsche was warned against that. Well, that kind of reminds me of Pat Buchanan, because if you read his work, um, you know, Death of the West or Suicide of a Superpower, he has a lot of chapters in both those books talking about how because religion's basically going away in Western civilization, we're seeing the death of Western civilization. We're seeing it be replaced by this selfish hedonism. Uh, and we're seeing its nasty effects on all of us as individuals and a society as a whole. However, uh, another thing I wanted to say was you pointed out that he was broad in what he would say and that uh, people you know, who weren't really familiar with most of his work would then misinterpret him. And, uh, you know, thus this makes it easier for leftists to fall into his work because of its broadness. But in reality, he's very, uh, in my eyes, at least from what I was hearing, it sounds like he was very right wing. And uh, I would even go as far to say uh, if Nietzsche was around today, he'd be a paleoconservative type because of some of the things I was hearing. And uh, that's something that I feel, you know, Cotton, as you said, you know, how most people in our in-groups don't really read Nietzsche. Well, the idea that these people are so individualistic that they don't realize that these large groups are doing such great harm to society through their actions, uh, that's something that isn't talked about in our circles enough either, I feel like. Um, and if it is, I think it's by mostly, you know, the intelligent spearhead of the this movement which would be people like uh jeff dice or again pat buchanan and uh or lou rockwell um but uh uh another thing that reminded me of buchanan again was you said he uh nietzsche flipped philosophy on its head and asked questions that people didn't really consider before again that reminded me of pat buchanan in his 1992 uh culture war speech that shook up you know, the American populace, especially the right wing populace. I mean, we, we all three know about the movement. It started with a coalition with uh, the paleo libertarians and paleo conservatives between Buchanan and Rothbard. And uh, I feel like that's honestly making a comeback with our in groups and how we interact and, you know, just what we do. And also the people who are, again, spearheading this. Um, so I, uh, Cotton, first, I want to ask you, what are your thoughts on that? And uh, Dave, I, you know, if you have anything you want to add in, please do. Well, as far as uh, Nietzsche being like a paleo-conservative type, um, I don't think that he would uh, agree with a lot of that. Because he was... Uh, part of what makes him so popular is that he questioned everything, like literally everything. So I, I don't think, and, and, and this is part of like his contradiction, or one of the contradictions in his work, is that in some ways he heralds uh, tradition, while in other ways he was like, tradition is this weird construct that has no basis to it and that there's no reason for it being, you know, worth abiding by. So, um, 
I, I, I'm not, and also he hated politics. So I know, uh, he, um, uh, he hated democracy famously, which isn't talked about enough, but, um, I, I, th there's not, and I'm, uh, David can get into this, uh, with, uh, when we talk about him and law, but, uh, I haven't read, and I, I gotta preface this by saying I haven't read, uh, literally every word of Nietzsche, so it's, it's entirely possible that I, I didn't catch something that, that, uh, that he wrote to the contrary of what I'm saying, but, it seems to me that in his work, he was very like he didn't care about politics. He seemed to he seemed to think that politics was below the questions worth answering, you know. So, um, I'm not entire like I think um, I think if if Nietzsche were around in the time when Pat Buchanan was at his uh, height, Nietzsche might have looked down upon him. But uh, I think he would have looked down upon Pat Buchanan a lot less than other people in the public sphere at the time. Um, but I, I think that there is a lot of a lot of overlap where in Nietzsche his his answers to to very difficult questions are very metaphysical and very broad i think pat buchanan is one of the people that seems to have uh even if he didn't realize he was uh kind of gave those similar sentiments a practical application yeah, that makes sense. And uh I think I think the thing with Nietzsche that would kind of put him against the the paleo cons is just the uh, you were talking about culture and and stuff. I mean, Nietzsche was such a staunch individualist. And I know that there's definitely that 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 strain, you know, within paleo conservatism, but you know, they also tend to focus on religion and tradition and culture too as being really important things and at least my understanding of Nietzsche is he doesn't really I mean he cares about them because he writes about them so much but he thinks they're all basically faulty and I think this this ties in with with what you said about how he's kind of the first postmodernist and I think that's that's kind of true and it gets into the interesting question that's been a debate over the last few years of of what sh what is or should be the role of postmodernism in modern libertarianism? Like, is postmodernism compatible with it, first off, but also is it also the ultimate justification of it? And I've listened to a few, uh, I've listened to a few talks and debates that, what's the guy's name, the, the postmodernist guy who... Thaddeus Russell? Russell, that's right. Um, and he, he, the way he says is, I'm not, I'm not making arguments. I'm telling stories, right? He'll say that a lot of the time. And and when he analyzes uh, Foucault and and those kind of guys, 
he kind of says they weren't making arguments. They were basically just outlining the history of like um, of psychiatry or like loony bins, right? I yeah. think that was Foucault's yeah, big that's work. Foucault. Was a, Mad madness and civilization, right? And so he's not he's not making a philosophical, rigid, logical argument. He's just going over the history of quote unquote mental illness and madness, um, and saying, "Hey, this is all you know just." This is all just a social construct. None of this really exists. And it seems to be almost, uh, this would be an interesting thing too, and you probably know more about this, Cotton, than I do because you're a psychology student. It seems kind of similar to Saz yeah. and what he kind of talks about. The Myth of Mental Illness was his book or whatever, yeah. right? Um, it just seems to me that, that that's more of what Nietzsche's going at. He's not necessarily trying to m create some kind of political grouping or call to action like the paleocons would he's just more interested in like you said cotton the very broad metaphysical psycho psychological stuff he seems to call out more of the things he hates rather than giving prescriptions for what he thinks the right thing is yeah yeah that that's a lot of his philosophy is critiquing different things and um he does had he does have some prescriptions uh although like famously in in philosophy they're kind of uh depending on who you ask they're a bit underwhelming but uh yeah like uh if you if you talk about Foucault his most famous contribution is the idea of the panopticon and he outlines that in uh, Madness and Civilization. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry. Wasn't uh, that Bentham who well, Bentham I, I, designed I'll, the? I'll, I'll get to that. Okay, um, okay. Uh, I forget the name of the the book. It, it's Foucault's most famous book, um, where he writes about um, the uh, prison system in France throughout history uh it's punish is in the name I, I just cannot remember it but he uh outlines the french penal system throughout history and he was saying that early in the penal system uh executions were incredibly public but as time went on they increasing increasingly became less public and in line with that, as the executions became less public, more executionable offenses began to uh, arise. So that was one interesting correlation that, that he noticed. But his major thing is the panopticon. And, ba and, and that was like his metaphor for society as more punishable offenses accrued which was like there were these prisons, and this is the Bentham thing, the, the Prussian prison model that our schools are based on now, where uh, prisoners would be in their cell, and part of what made them not rebel or part of what made them productive was that there was a central viewer that had access to every cell of every prisoner. And each individual prisoner 
did not know at any given moment whether they were being viewed or not. So they had to work under the assumption that it in, that they were co- excuse me they were constantly being viewed, uh, which uh, made them act differently than they would you know if if they were alone. So uh, th- this, uh, like you mentioned with Bentham, uh, Bentham saw this and thought it was great. You know, he he thought you know hey let's make schools like this let's make uh, workplaces like this. And uh, I don't know if Foucault uh, mentions Bentham specifically, but he does mention, listen, you know, you're in school from, you know, five years old and you're in the panopticon. Then you graduate. Then you go to work. And you're in the panopticon. And then, you know, let's say you rebel against that and then you're in prison. And hey, you're in the panopticon. So at any given moment, there's the possibility that you are being viewed. So you, you can, you always have to act like you are being watched from some figure that has power over you. So that, that's, uh, Foucault's major, um, uh, that, or his most popular philosophical edition, but, uh, uh, Nietzsche definitely hits on that a bit when he talks about like slave morality, you know, like you're always like, a, like a, somebody of a, of a slave mentality is acting in response to somebody. And I, that, that's probably one of the things when I think about Nietzsche and, and, uh, modern politics or modern action in any capacity, I always think of the slave versus master mentality. Like, you know, what are you doing? Are you reacting to someone? Cause like in Nietzsche's philosophy, when he talks about reaction, he's always, he, he's, he's talking about you're doing something in response to something else that does not lead to progress in your, in your own life. Like you're, you're somebody did something to you and you're acting against them, and that actively diverts your attention from a line of progress. And I, I think it's while Foucault, I, I love the Panopticon metaphor that Foucault did. It's it's very uh, philosophical, while Nietzsche's like master and slave morality is very psychological and and much more like with both of those ideas conjoined. Uh, Nietzsche's master and slave morality is, or, uh, uh, yeah, uh, mentality is, uh, uh, much more psychological and much more applicable. Yeah. And, and that ties in with, uh, that ties in with religion too. Like with the slave morality, it's like, if you're always being watched by God, right. And you will, and judgment will come to you in the afterlife and and that was something that that Nietzsche railed against too. I mean, obviously he was very much against the the Christian uh, morality, um, calls it the slave the slave ethic or the slave mentality, whichever terminology you you use. Wants he wants people to break free from that, and I think that that makes sense how he kind of becomes this this proto postmodernist, right? And it uh, I guess the the next logical train in that is is he a nihilist right 
because Nietzsche, he's always railing against the, he's always railing against this slave ethic, and in many places he seems to kind of argue that the there basically is no real, there basically real really is no true morality. There and he focuses on like the aesthetics, and this is beyond good and evil, right? He says we need to get beyond the idea of good and evil and have the idea of good and bad kind of replace it. And good and bad is a more aesthetic rather than moral condemnation quality. And he talks about how guilt, guilt is just a social construct in order to rein people in, right? And so can you talk a little bit about uh, Nietzsche, his kind of critique? Well, he, um, I don't think he was a nihilist. Um, because, well, here's a, like a, a factual example of that, you know, Schopenhauer is like the most famous nihilist ever. And Nietzsche read Schopenhauer while he was very young and liked him. And then, uh, throughout his career, he was like, all right, here's how Schopenhauer was wrong. Schopenhauer was like, don't care about X, Y, Z, but no, to, to, uh, abide by like the template of my morality, don't, you know, just not care. And, uh, Nietzsche did outline, well, Nietzsche was all about life, uh, affirmation. You know, like he hated things that he thought were life denying. He thought that uh, uh, Christianity was life denying, and uh, which is is pretty much the only reason he had any respect for artists. Which is that's why I like Nietzsche because he hated artists, and like that rocks because artists suck. But uh, <laughs> uh, but he was like you know. Artists are ignorant of everything except life. And that's like their only saving grace. Uh, so like he definitely had things that he believed were worth achieving, which is like the, the main thing that, that nihilists uh, disagree with. So like he has, and David and I were talking about this the other day, you know, he has different antidotes to, uh, like the the modern morality that he considered perverse you know he has like the ubermensch which is super famous um he has becoming uh what oneself is and the sovereign individual and the eternal recurrent uh no uh what's it called eternal recurrence is uh what he considered his most famous insight but i don't i don't consider him a nihilist at all like i think here here's a good thing that i always uh, or a good example um that i i think about a lot uh where people may read like a total of a hundred pages of somebody and they're like all right i got what i know about him you know like a lot of people read Hoppe, they read, you know, the God, democracy, the God that failed. They read like literally the first two chapters and they're like, all right, I got Hoppe. And they did not read like the latter 350 pages of Hoppe. Like people do that with Nietzsche as well. 
and like they'll see him they'll read that passage of god is dead and they're like yeah fuck god you know yeah and like that's but, all they get out of it you know but with nietzsche it's it's interesting because of the approach he takes where he is doing more psychological things and i do think that there's an important distinction between psychology and philosophy absolutely I mean, the 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 reasons why you believe what you believe are not the same as whether or not what you believe is correct. I yeah. think that's just, you know, that's just common sense. Um, but so it's interesting how Nietzsche seems like he's kind of a thinker that different people are able to inject their own psychological or philosophical views into him. Yeah. And that seems to be counter to everything he was trying to do. Yeah. Because he takes such this broad approach, because he takes this psychological approach, people can read him and say, oh, okay, uh, the Ubermensch is like this world dominator. But then, like you said, they've only read one page, and there's other places where he is explicitly like, no, like the Ubermensch is someone... Like will to power, that was another one of his big ideas, yeah. the will to power. The will to power is not the will to dominate. It's the will to have control over your own life and to do, like, if you want to do something, you have the power to do it. You don't have to rely on other people to help you. Yeah. And so there seems to be some, you know, with the individualistic libertarianism, that seems to be kind of compatible. But then also with, you know, the kind of more market view of things of how people come together and... And the market allows us to do things, create things that no individual person could. Division of labor, you know, uh, yeah. uh, 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 knowledge dispersed throughout society. So how can libertarians take that, that this kind of weird kind of thing where Nietzsche can be interpreted in so many ways and it can be taken in one side to be against the libertarian economics, but then it's also kind of in line with the libertarian ethic. Yeah, you know, like when I was younger, I always, because uh, like my 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 family uh, saw I was getting into philosophy, and they were kind of like, "We love that you're doing this. We love that you're like looking up," you know, metaphorically. But you know, what is it about philosophy that interests you? And this is always the explanation I would give with uh, psychology as well, that like philosophy and psychology is the pursuit of explaining the inexplicable. Like it, it's, it's, and I th like, that's a, that's a metaphor for life. You know, like I know, I know a lot of people right now and for a long time, but it seems particularly right now are really into uh, Camus and the myth of Sisyphus you know, he's like I ha I had it written in my notes, Camus and Nietzsche. Like, yeah, I was wondering if there oh, was wait, any it's, analogies it's or, or what? It's not Camus, like Camus in the oh, anus. Oh no, <laughs> no, he's he's uh he's French, so he has to pronounce his name dumb. <laughs> it's Albert Camus. Oh God, man, this is one reason why this podcast <laughs> hates the French. <laughs> No, Camus is Camus is only like one of the only good French people. Camus, Voltaire, uh, Napoleon was pretty based. Descartes, I'm not gonna lie. Descartes was all right. Yeah, Descartes, Descartes was pretty cool. Uh, but Camus was like, no, life doesn't have any objective meaning. But the closest you can get to life's objective meaning is the pursuit of an objective meaning. 
which you know it's, it's kind of this kind of Misesian subjective value. Exactly, exactly. Like you know, this this is how I would explain it to somebody that like just took an intro to econometrics class. You know, like uh, modern economics thinks that they can answer everything with a formula, you know, or, or like a handbook of formulas, you know, like you got a certain number of uh, formulas and you can, you know, figure out utopia. Um, well, when has that worked? So people like the Austrians say no and they flip it. So what they say is it's not possible to understand how a mass of humans are going to interact where each individual is under different circumstances. So, uh, that is very, it's very individualistic for one thing, but, uh, it's, and, and, you know, before we, before we recorded, you mentioned Deleuze and I've mentioned him to both of y'all, uh, personally, but Deleuze has this idea of rhizomatic thinking. And I think that is, that is his most popular belief. And there's a ton of stuff in Nietzsche that supports rhizomatic thinking. So the rhizome is like a good metaphor for it is I, I don't in Louisiana, we have this a lot. I don't know where y'all are. Uh, if y'all have this, but like on the side of homes, there will be like vines. vines. Grow, exactly. Uh, there's no real beginning there, there once was, but there's not now. Cause like these vines have been there for 40 years or whatever, you know, they just exist. Uh, and, and they, they just spread out. There's no beginning or end. Uh, and Deleuze would say that, let's say you're, uh, we'll pick on the, the Randians. Let's say you're an objectivist. Uh, if you're an objectivist, what you're doing is you're taking one square foot of that vine, which, you know, spreads a, uh, uh, like a 10 by six foot wall. You're taking one square foot and you're saying, all right, this is my total outlook. Like th that's pretty ridiculous. So, uh, what Deleuze would say, he, he would say that, uh, like back to what I was saying earlier. Uh, how different philosophers had a point A to point B to point C logic structure, which again, like I said earlier, is is very useful. In some ways, it isn't. And and Deleuze would say, in in some areas, and I think economics is one. We don't necessarily need a hierarchical logic structure in understanding economics as a as a uh like a uh a truth you know it, it's it's impossible to understand uh well because like econometrics is like the scientific method taken to a ridiculous extent you know so that that's that's an example of point a to point b to point c logic uh taken to a ridiculous place so uh austrian economics is is very rhizomatic but because, and I, I gotta, I gotta mention Deleuze considered himself a Marxist, not in an economic, uh, excuse me, an economic sense. 
but uh, I'm not even I'm not really sure how he how he considered himself a uh, Marxist because a lot of people in the current age say no he was a capitalist so it, it's kind of it's it's weird uh, or they would say he's a liberal so it, it's not understood and you can either think that because or you can think that uh, people aren't sure exactly what he was because uh, he's dead now but uh, because he was stupid or because like he was just explaining things that we can't necessarily understand yet. And that's the, the direction that I lean because people at the time when Nietzsche was writing, uh, thought, yeah, this is stupid. It's nonsense. It makes no sense. It's useless. Let's not pay attention to it. And then as time went on, more and more things that Nietzsche predicted came true. Like 90% of the things that he predicted came true. So eventually, uh, in like the mid 20th century, people were like, damn, like we got to pay attention to this guy. Like there's one guy, I know I, I mentioned him to you, David, uh, Walter Kaufman, who uh, translated a lot of Nietzsche's stuff he wrote a book. I forget what it's called. It might just be called Nietzsche. But like if you look up his name, Walter Kaufman, you can you can find it. Uh, he wrote the book that introduced Nietzsche uh, to America. And that is when Nietzsche took off. And uh, like once people significantly after Nietzsche's death uh, discovered him, they thought we cannot ignore this guy. And you, you see that with Deleuze. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm rambling. I forget what you asked, but let me, let me finish whatever thought I'm on now. You see that with Deleuze now, in particular with uh, Bird Archist's episodes with uh, Pete Quinones on Free Man Beyond the Wall. He's been doing these postmodern episodes or, uh, or he's done several postmodern episodes. They have a series. I don't necessarily know the theme of the series, but he did a couple on Deleuze and one on Foucault. And I think, and it's been incredibly popular. So I think that we're in a moment right now where with Deleuze in particular, and to a slightly less extent, Foucault, where people are saying back when these books were published, they made no sense. But even like Foucault was super popular. Deleuze was not. But Foucault was super popular. But like now, uh, with his uh, Societies of Control, which I, I'm not prepared to outline, but but look that up. Uh, it, we're like, yeah, he was right. He, he was incredibly forward thinking and people at the time didn't necessarily recognize that. They thought he was a bit crazy, but, uh, yeah. So I think Nietzsche is one of those characters. And I think, and, and the other thing to mention is Deleuze and Foucault. It's hard to understand them without having a basis in Nietzsche. They took incredible influence from Nietzsche. So a lot of these people are intertwined while a lot of people uh, may like Nietzsche, but don't like the real postmodernists uh, don't don't necessarily they don't know that or they don't recognize it. But 
uh, a lot of Foucault stuff and, and a ton of Deleuze's stuff is just a continuation of Nietzsche's ideas. So Cotton, I believe while this wasn't the main focus of Dave's question, um, basically what I was thinking of when you were answering what he asked was, you know, how can libertarians in a Rothbardian sort of way use him for our own agenda? Well, it's not possible to understand how mass peoples will act because it's not possible to determine, uh, as Austrians would put it, uh, individual human action, and as Nietzsche would put it, everyone's individual broadness. Um, another, and the last point uh, was that you, you've said this, and I really like this. Um, most philosophers have a point A to B to C structure. Um, now, this is probably why I've always had such a big problem with philosophers is because they just, you know, in a quick way to put it, they just act all knowing. And that really bothers me because they it seems they try to act as if they can understand every single uh, individual's mindset and how they will act. And I just think that's a, not a good way of putting it, which is very ironic that, you know, uh, Austrians tend to like philosophers who do have a point A to B to C structure. Um, however, going on with what I wrote down, you know, this isn't really all that because we understand this is not how things fold out. Um, as Austrians always say, uh, Pear Island especially, uh, and as I think Nietzsche would also agree uh, with what you've said so far about how he sees uh, broadness and, uh, you know, life, is that, uh, you know, there's always uncertainty in a, in a world full of individual human action, uh, again, as Austrians would put it, or broadness, as Nietzsche would put it. So uh, what, do you, what, do you, what do you think of that, Cotton? Because um, going back to what I said earlier about, you know, how I think there's going to be a, a rise again in this uh, right-wing populism movement, um, we kind of need a, a way to... Yeah get people interested, turn people on in a way, be sexy. You know, that's a dirty way to put it, but that's what we need to be is we need to be sexy to people. So do you think that's a good way of how we can use Nietzsche to be sexy to people? <laughs> yeah. Um... Well, before you, before you go, Cotton, I will say that this seems to kind of tie in with the determinism issue, right? Like how are people going to act, human action, uncertainty, and I know that Nietzsche was a determinist. Yeah. Um, so could you maybe, you know, uh, answer Stratty's question, but kind of bring in that that kind of wrinkle in the fray of like Nietzsche's view of determinism, because the Austrians definitely don't believe in that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the best way to answer that is uh, to bring back Deleuze, because again with the the rhizome example i gave earlier deleuze thought that to call yourself a somethingist was was weird you know he he thought it was it was uh uh restrictive you know he was like okay fine you're a you're a kantian but if you're a Kantian, you know, that means you're not paying attention or not using a ton of useful ideas that, uh, you can use to, to better, uh, knowledge. So, or to, to gain knowledge. So 
Um, and, and okay, let, let me think. Uh, so Stratton, you were basically asking like, how can we use Nietzsche, uh, like tactically in, in a individual sense to like, to gain liberty? Is that, is that what you kind of mean? Yeah. Yeah. Just like get people to our movement right. and, uh, yeah, you know, push that sentence. Okay. So, uh, right. So I'm, 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 I'm trying to, to, it's easy to marry two things, but I'm trying to marry three things right now. So with what Stratton is asking, I think it is possible. You're a polygamist. I see. I'm a polygamist. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, like with what Stratton's asking is like, how can we implement Nietzsche tactically? And Nietzsche was a determinist, uh, like Dave mentioned. So how can we, how can we, uh, hold those things at the same time? So I think that's where Deleuze, uh, definitely, uh, comes in handy. Cause like one of his ideas was that you know, like you read a philosopher and I think the book he outlines this in is what is philosophy? Uh, he wrote with a, another Frenchman named Guattari, but, uh, he, he said basically like, it's stupid to say, all right, I'm a Kantian, you know, like everything Kant said is right. I abide by all of it and Kant rocks. And he answered every question. He's, he thought that was stupid. and he, But what he thought was useful was to recognize what Kant got right and use it, but then to also recognize what Kant got wrong and to discard it. So I think that is what we have to do with Nietzsche. Uh, like Nietzsche, uh, w one of his cardinal ideas were like uh, human drives. He thought that Every action derived by unknowable drives. So these things that were instilled, and this is kind of a precursor to Freud's un unconscious, id, ego, and superego, where, um, uh, and in particular one of them, but I forget which one, but uh, maybe the id. But like these things are unknowable to us. We don't have access to them. And they inform all of our actions. So, like, we can't change them. So, he held that idea. And this is an inconsistency. He held that idea while also, like, a large amount of his philosophy was just giving advice. Well, which is it? You know, like, you're giving advice to people. But if they have these drives, then why does it matter? You know, so... Uh, I think he was largely right about the determinism, but here's a good popular example. You know, there's a, there's a guy that was really popular, a uh, psychologist that was really popular when Jordan Peterson was at his height. Uh, his name was Jonathan Haidt. And, uh, like he has several really popular books, uh, Malice. Mor the Moral Compass. Uh, the moral compass wasn't that his or uh, uh something it's uh i forget what it's called but his most popular book has moral in the name i forget i forget yeah. which one it is but uh malice talks about him a little bit in the new right but height 
does I, I consider a lot of academic uh, quote unquote objective psychology to be nonsense, but height does really good work in taking uh, things he has found in again quote unquote objective psychology research with marrying it to broader philosophical concepts. But he wrote a book called uh, The Happiness Hypothesis, which I think is a fantastic book. And what he was saying in that book is the mind is uh, basically like an elephant and an elephant uh, rider. So... He was saying that our conscious mind is the rider. That is what we have control over. While our unconscious mind is the elephant. So, uh, we cannot control the elephant. It's, it's impossible. It's unknowable to understand the, the intentions of the elephant. So, it's unknowable to understand exactly what's, what's going on with our unconscious. But... The rider does have some say in the direction that the elephant goes. Indirectly. Yeah, exactly. So it's impossible to ride an elephant in this metaphor like a horse, you know, where you can directly control where the horse goes. Uh, but it is possible on an elephant to influence which direction the elephant goes. So. He said he he used that metaphor as the mind, and, and I like that a lot because, like, Nietzsche uh, basically said that, like, there are these commandeering thoughts that the, the that our drives uh, initiate. And I haven't seen many people mention that, yes, you have these commandeering thoughts. Like, you have the thought, oh, I ought to get up and get some water. But I have not seen many people mention the process in between having that thought and the deciding of whether I should get up and get some water. You know, so I think that is the writer. It's the decision to act upon a thought you have. Uh, and then the decision, those decisions, I believe, eventually influence future commandeering thoughts. So that's like, I mean, you see that in like mindfulness meditation, how people like literally change their neurochemistry by just like sitting there and attempting to think about nothing. You can't think about nothing, but just the attempt to do it actively changes your brain in a seemingly po positive way. Um, so like it, I, I don't think that his, staunch determinism is correct. So, you know, uh, to bring it back to like practical applications, nowadays people are incredibly addicted to dopamine and you see that in uh, drug abuse and you see that in other stuff too. Like, you know... So getting, social media? Social media, that's right. Also in like these large bank loans that just anyone can get. Uh, and I think that uh, some form of dopamine withdrawal, like getting off social media every now and again, uh, and also 
not taking what is easy um, is incredibly beneficial. So another way to put that is basically having a low time preference. So I think that that is a good way, if that makes sense, I think that's a good way to marry like practical, quote unquote, political action uh, to Nietzsche's thoughts while in, in a Deleuzian sense to add what is seemingly true from Nietzsche's philosophy to our tool belt while not uh, adding what is um, not expressly true, not not what uh, we can reasonably uh, recognize. While, like the example I used with his strict determinism, it just doesn't seem true. And if it is true, if his like 100% deterministic view is true, then none of it matters. So, you know, what's the point? But uh, we, we can see that he hit upon something that was somewhat true. And like with the elephant uh, rider metaphor, you know, we, we get to something that seems a bit more true. And then we can add that to our tool belt while marrying other things to Nietzsche's view. And, and I think uh, I think the the full extent of marrying that idea to political action is probably agorism, where it is uh, as individualistic as you possibly can be while also engaging in a society of mutual trade uh, without infringing on other people, but also not forcing people to engage in that lifestyle. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it, he never, Nietzsche never ex expressly, uh, uh, explicated the idea of leading by influence, not by force, but it, a lot of his work leads one to that idea. You know, one Ubermensch will lead to two Ubermensches, which leads to six Ubermensches, you know, and so on and so forth. And that's a very uh, agoristic idea. And so, like, the more, like, I before I started reading Nietzsche, I, I didn't know much about agorism. I didn't have a lot of sympathy for agorists. But after reading Nietzsche, I, I, I uh, have... A lot of uh, goodwill towards them, and I think that uh, agorism is one of the best applications for the very broad things that Nietzsche outlined. Fantastic. So I wanna I wanna do a little shift now, and so I'd like to take the reins here for just a little bit and say a few things to kind of channel this into more politics and law. We were talking a little bit about politics. Um, but I want to get more into like some of the legal kind of things and looking at the Nietzsche didn't talk much about politics or law, but he did have some you know insights we can draw from his philosophical stuff. And also he did say some things directly. So if you can indulge me, I'll take a few minutes and kind of lay out some of the thoughts I'm having and then I can toss it back to you and, and see what you think. Um, so we talked about his nihilism and I'm I'm happy that you kind of said that he's not a nihilist because I kind of I, I kind of got that vibe as well. He he seems to have especially in Beyond Good and Evil, he seems to have kind of this nihilistic flair where it's like 
you know, the good versus evil is not the right way to look at it. We got to look at it good versus bad, and it's just kind of replacing ethics with aesthetics um, and, and the ubermensch. So there's kind of that. But with what you explained, you know, you can see how that's not a full nihilist uh, interpretation isn't necessarily the way to go. Um, also, he talks about objective reality, and this is part of his criticism of religion and particularly Christianity, where he says, the world that exists, our world, is the only world. And if we're focusing on the afterlife or, you know, uh, uh, gifts in heaven or punishments in hell, that takes away our efforts from focusing on the world right now. And that stifles, you know, the individual and the creative power and the will to power in the actual world, which is the only thing we know for sure exists. So, you know, that's kind of a, that's kind of a Randian point. And also his determinism. That's another important important point, too. I, I've thought a lot about the determinism problem lately, especially as it applies to law and, and like legal theory and particularly um, punishment for torts and crimes. It's like if you were predetermined to do something, well, can you really justly be punished for it, right? Because you were always going to do it. There's nothing we could have done, so why should you be punished for something you were predetermined to do. And this also ties in with Nietzsche's view of guilt, guilt being, you know, an ex post facto kind of that that guilt precedes morality in Nietzsche's view. Um, so for him, there if if you were to take that kind of idea um and, and apply it to law, it kind of hacks at the base of the entire Western legal tradition because the entire idea of punishment for crimes is the idea that you have free will and that you chose to do this and therefore we're punishing you because you chose to do this thing. And so, you know, that's kind of the basis of justice there. And that's a natural law kind of idea, which which Nietzsche rejects. Um, it reminds me of a Stoic point because the Stoics as well were determinist. And I think this 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 as well ties in with Deleuze and what you were talking about, where I, when I, I took a class on the Stoics, right, I didn't agree with their entire train of, of, of logic, but there's a few kernels of, of Stoicism that I agree with entirely, and I have integrated into my worldview even though I don't agree with everything they're saying. And, one of, and one, part of that is their view of, of how to handle things that are outside of your control, right? You know, Epictetus, you can be free even if you're a slave— if you accept that you have no control over certain aspects of your life, but then you take control over those aspects which you do have control over, and therefore you can be free even as a slave. And I think that's a good insight there of, you know, don't worry about the things you don't, you don't have control over because it's just a waste of time, right? And, and that kind of ties in with Nietzsche with his distinction of, of this world and the afterlife. And so another Stoic thing was um, the, the slave who steals the bread— and then the slave is flogged for stealing the bread. And the flogger, the slave says to the flogger, hey, you can't flog me. I was predetermined to steal the bread. Yeah. It wasn't my fault. And then the flogger says, yes, you were predetermined to steal the bread. And you were predetermined to be flogged. <laughs> right? And I'm like, oh, okay. So that's my view of determinism. Because for me personally, I don't think determinism matters. Because first of all, I don't think it's something we could know for yeah, sure. Exactly. Because even if even if we could know for sure that determinism is 
broadly correct, how could we know what the impelling force of that determinism is? And that's the problem with Marxism. Marx was a total determinist materialist, but he went so far to say, I know exactly how this is going to happen. <laughs> yeah. I know exactly the causal forces and the interactions of things. It's the relations of people in society to the means of production. Like, that's it. And then he goes through, because I know this, I can tell you the entire broad swath of history. And I, and I don't do agree with that, but Hoppe has, has talked about determinism, and his, and his argument is it doesn't matter because ultimately, even if determinism is real, well, even if determinism is only a fiction—no, sorry, even if free will is only a fiction, it's a necessary fiction— given the nature of our minds. And that's a Kantian kind of epistemology, right? Yeah. Which, which I've come around to. You know, I started with Ayn Rand, and I was like, oh, Kant, he's, he's the bad guy because Ayn yeah. Rand told me. And then, and then I actually studied him. I'm like, oh, okay, like he, he, his epistemology is correct. And I think, you know, people who try to take his epistemology and apply it to mesophysics, they've got it wrong. And Hoppe, I, it, it was in Austrian, uh, economic science and the Austrian method. He has a section where he talks about Kant and that epistemology, and he's like, no, like Kant wasn't talking about a real world versus a fictional or a real world versus a platonic world. He was talking about a there, there's like these modes of understanding and filters in your mind by which you process data. And that's very Misesian. So tying all that, the nihilism, the objective reality, the determinism into law. It's it's interesting because, like I said before, law is kind of, especially Western law, is based on that idea of free will and determinism. Kind of laying that out, I want to give Nietzsche's definition of justice, which I found. When he kind of he seems to define justice as equal to the equal, unequal to the unequal, and so this is a very anti-egalitarian view, and he was very anti-Rousseau anti-French Revolution, anti—he was anti-Kant as far as Kant was a, you know, a Platonist, um, interpretations of Kant that he was that. And so, so that's the main issue is, does Nietzsche's insights give any possibility for a theory of, for a theory of justice? Because his, his theory of justice seems to be to each, to each what they earn, and that seems to be a liber very libertarian theory of justice. But then also there's this this problem of his determinism and this problem of his possible nihilism. So how do we square that? How do we square where Nietzsche is saying there is this idea of justice of to each what they earn, you know? But he also seems to have this view that could kind of throw out any idea of of uh, retributive justice at all. So what do you kind of think about that? Um, I think that. Uh if you were to, again, like take a non-Deleuzian view of Nietzsche, trying to evaluate his work as a total, I think it would be incredibly hard to marry it to like any sort of libertarian uh, uh, system of justice. Because um, uh, Nietzsche was very aristocratic. You know, he believed that there were some people that were just better suited to live in a, a masterly way. And then there were some people that were just unfortunate enough to be more suited towards the slave mentality. And uh, 
I, I, I don't, I haven't read this, uh, directly, but I, I think he would say that those of the slave mentality should not be judged as if they were one that had the masterly drives. Uh, I don't know how he would want them to be judged, but it's difficult. So, and, and that's why I find the, the stuff on Nietzsche and law particularly interesting is because when I was reading Nietzsche and the books that I read in particular were Beyond Good and Evil is, uh, one of his most famous and, uh, another that is almost equally famous is a genealogy, a genealogy of morals or genealogy of morality, depending on which translation you get. And like, those are often tied for most famous. And then the, the second is, uh, uh, gay science, which is incredibly, uh, popular. I see your smirk there, Stratton. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but that that's a super uh, popular book. So it's those three that are usually the, the top three. And I've read a lot of all three. And I didn't see much that I thought could translate directly to legal theory. So, But then also, you know, to a point we talked about earlier, it's all so broad. So with the, and, and this is why it, it's broad. So a lot of people can, like you find three different Nietzsche scholars and they all have three different opinions about a specific point. But with the Deleuzian view, it's not an issue, you know, find what works and add it to your tool belt, you know? So I, I, it, I, in the, for me, I didn't see uh, much in his work that would inform me about, uh, different legalities, but, um, I, I think that there's stuff there that could, for those that are, that are, uh, uh, legally minded, I guess I should say, which I am not. So, so let's talk about his views on democracy. Um, because he was very anti-democratic, very anti-egalitarian, and and his criticisms of democracy struck me as very interesting because he kind of views democracy as the inferior banding together to to tear down the superior, and that's kind of his view of democracy. And I think that I think that has some validity, but there's also the the, and I think that's kind of a, a proto-Hoppian view. I mean, Hoppe does view democracy as as a kind of you know the the a and b banding together to rip off c um but also a criticism of democracy also seems to be that it's a it's a front for it's a legitimization of the elite class's power right it's it's a way for the elite class to legitimize their rule as well you elected us and we're just you know, we're just acting on what you you elected. You know, so so there's that. So, which of those two views do you think is the better criticism of democracy? That it's kind of a way for you know for people to just 
rip each other off with the majority plus one, or is it a way for the elites to create this 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 air of legitimacy that then they can rip off the masses? What do you think is the better criticism? Well, you know, I until fairly recently, I was undecided on the whole voting as violence debate. But uh, my good buddy uh, that y'all know, uh, Derek, from uh, former Burning Boots, but now Friends Against Government podcast, he was always saying, no, you know, voting is not violence. That's dumb. It's just a expression of preference. We we, and, we talked about this and when we had them on. Yeah. You know, I never thought about it that way. And since I heard him say that, I, I, I think uh, I'm not 100% decided, but I'm like 85% decided in that view. And so that's me. Uh, as far as Nietzsche goes, um, democracy he wasn't incredibly interested in democracy and and that might be a fault uh to his work because at the time democracy you know there were still in uh europe uh there were still it was mostly still monarchies so the i guess he did not necessarily see a reason to be interested in it because there were just you know a handful of countries that were liberal democracies but he did cover it and i think that his uh discussion of democracies in line with his uh discussion of christianity which uh, both of those uh uh diagnoses are are incredibly similar I think uh, what he was saying was that Christianity was, and I don't necessarily believe this, but this was this was his opinion. Uh, Christianity was basically like a co-opting of morality by a weaker populace, which you mentioned earlier. Right, democracy. They they they, uh, they elevate their own shortcomings as a virtue. Right. And therefore, that, they get moral legitimacy over better people. Yes, ex- asceticism. Uh, yeah. So that is is what Nietzsche saw Christianity as, and that's what he saw democracy as, and and there there are parts I forget in which book, but there are parts where. Uh, Nietzsche is, is uh, lambasting Christianity while at the same time uh, speaking about democracy like as an example of why the point, you know, uh, doesn't work or uh, the point about why Christianity doesn't work. So he, he kind of uses those at, at certain points in his work as, as kind of a, a, a example and tandem, you know. He he see he saw well like like what I said earlier he saw science respecters quote unquote as like just a people using the Christian ethic or the religious ethic but without God he saw yeah. like just the same framework and 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 there are points where he he saw the same thing about like staunch liberal democrats you know in the classical sense he's like you know this isn't the answer to your problems this isn't gonna fix everything 
you know, calm down. This isn't the, the, uh, end all, you know? So, uh, like he, he, it's hard to, to see. And part of this is you have to infer and part of this, he outright says, but then again, you know, he contradicts himself a lot, but it's hard to read his philosophy without thinking, uh, at the individual level. Um, and democracy is de facto anti thinking from the individual level. You know, yeah. you vote because the end to your vote is in your mind going towards a societal good. So, uh, Nietzsche and, and that's an example uh, and you, you have to mention this nowadays with Nietzsche, like that's an example why he was definitely not a Nazi, you know, like, uh, the, the, the common, uh, thing is, um, like his, he went mad he went crazy. He probably had syphilis. So he just lost his mind and his sister took care of him and his sister, inherited his estate and famously before he went crazy he hated his sister he thought she was a bitch you know so uh but sadly like his entire estate went to her after he went mad and she was very uh she held ideas that were very anti-nietzschean uh and that's how his philosophy like she picked and choose things that uh uh, the Nazis liked, and that's kind of where, um, the, uh, might is right kind of stuff comes from, but, um, uh, Nietzsche was the, he, he had a famous line cause Nietzsche was Prussian and he considered himself German. Uh, and he has a very famous line where he says, the only thing worse than a Jew is a German. So like, you know, how are you going to say that guy's a Nazi? <laughs> that guy's yeah. a Nazi. You know, so like he was, you know, the the one of the broadest things you can say about Nietzsche that is 100% true is that he was anti-group. You know, which I like. You know, I I I used to be cool with labels and I I still think labels can be very useful. You know, like I I can recognize that people that call themselves anarcho-capitalists, I tend to like more than people of other labels, you know, but I'm not, I would not consider myself an anarcho-capitalist and that's the Deleuzian stuff right. coming back in, you know? Well, I mean, isn't all language just labeling? I yeah, mean, exactly. That's what exactly. we're doing. So you kind of can't get away from it. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's like once you read the dictionary, every other book after that's just a remix. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> dude. Yeah. Okay. Dude. So I got just a few more points I want to hit. Um, and then we'll wrap it up. So you brought up his kind of view of socialism as Christianity without God. And, and this gets into the, the question of like Christianity and liberty. And, and our listeners who have listened to our podcast know that I'm not, I'm not religious, um, but I don't have any, you know, contempt or hatred for religion. I mean, Nietzsche, but Nietzsche, yeah, Nietzsche, Nietzsche kind of sparked a little bit of that old kind of uh, Christianity kind of is dumb. Like it kind of sparks that in yeah. me when I read them. But uh, so I just want to get get your kind of talk his thoughts, because this is a uh, Christianity focuses on free will. 
free choice. Right. You have the choice whether or not to, to follow God or do the right thing. And that's kind of at the basis of our Western legal system. Like I was talking about, like free will is kind of the basis of, of punishment. And, and, and Nietzsche throws that out. You know, he thinks that it's just guilt precedes morality and it's just getting in the way of, of, of the greater men and it, it creates this egalitarianism. So do you think that he is onto something there or do you think that there are other considerations, um, you know, about Christianity and the influence it has on our law? Because, I mean, if you look at the American Revolution versus the French Revolution, the American Revolution was very much like, you know, God and country and like yeah. God played a very big role in their philosophies, whereas the French Revolution, you know, weren't they like killing priests they were beheading yeah. priests and and yeah. tearing down burning down churches and like we're replacing god with reason you know yeah. and so it's it's hard for me you know being an, a not religious person who cares so much about philosophy and reason to be like yeah you know like we should reason and objective proof and reality should be our standard by which we work with each other but then when you look in the past the people who tried to do that like the french revolution or augusta comte like who tried to elevate reason as a religion, they they led to mass killings. Yeah. So so, what can Nietzsche? What did he get right? What did he get wrong with this kind of Christianity religion versus liberty? Okay, so this is something that I break away. Uh, man, again, I'm trying to marry three things in my mind. Okay. So, so bear with me. <laughs> yes, please. But this is a soapbox of mine, um, and I'm not entirely ready to clearly explain it but you know the 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 people that Nietzsche primarily from Nietzsche two different disciplines emerged one is philosophy 2.0 with like Heidegger in particular but then like Husserl who is Heidegger's teacher but just these people that further flipped philosophy like Nietzsche did. And then uh, after Nietzsche was the birth of an individual discipline of psychology. So from there, like I mentioned earlier, Freud thought Nietzsche was one of the smartest men ever. He thought he was, he had the greatest insights of any philosopher, uh, whether that be in the ancients or in recent memory in his time, in the early 20th, late uh, 19th century. So, <clears throat> who influences my thought about this in particular is Freud's student, Carl Jung, who has become very popular uh, with Jordan Peterson because that's other than Nietzsche, uh, Carl Jung is one of Jordan Peterson's main influences. Um, and Jordan Peterson, or I'm sorry, uh, Carl Jung is very Nietzschean. He's very broad. He's he his his entire pursuit is saying, hey, there are these things that are so broad that we cannot understand the archetypes right yeah exactly like there are these there are these things in our mind that are primordial it's very that, it's it's very kantian too 
like we were saying before, like the these ideas or modes in our mind by which we process and understand information. Right. Yeah. Uh, but like Jung recognized that these things are so broad. Like the only way to understand them in their totality is to be God. So it's impossible. And Nietzsche may have recognized that, but then tried to seek uh, like a flank to that, you know, in his like create your own morality. But and, and this is what I was thinking while you were answering your question is for Nietzsche, like the ideal society is every person creates their own morality. Well, the problem with that that I, whenever I was reading Nietzsche, I would think about Mises or, you know, other people in the Austrian tradition, is that the main idea of the Austrian tradition is philosophically, not mathematically, but philosophically recognizing patterns. You know, so in Nietzsche's idea ethic, uh, he thinks that man can overpower nature. So, like, that's a clear break with me. You know, I forget the name of the book. I have recommended it on my podcast exactly probably 18,000 times. <laughs> it's, uh, oh, uh, oh, man. Uh, Road to Serfdom. What, what's his name? God. Hayek? Hayek. Hayek wrote a book. Uh, I forget the name. In my opinion, it is his most underrated book, um, The Fatal Conceit, Ah, yes. The Errors yes. of Socialism. Yes. I think that that book is better than The Road to Serfdom, because basically in that book, very basically, I'm, I'm dumbing it down too much, but you definitely read the book, but his, his thesis in a, in a broad sense is that The Fatal Conceit is uh, he, he, he blames a lot of people, but in particular, he blames college professors teaching students that they can change nature. That is the fatal conceit. Yeah. And that is definitely present in Nietzsche. And I personally believe that he gets that wrong. Yeah. So, but I think that's where the psychologists and the philosophers to a certain extent, but Definitely people in the psychoanalytic tradition explore uh, what he got wrong to a very useful extent. You know, uh, Freud, I mean, Freud's one of those characters where when, you know, you take an intro to psychology class and they talk about Freud, they only talk about the ridiculous stuff and they never talk about the things that psychologists are still using to this day which is like maybe 60% of his thoughts. You know, like he was like the founding father of modern psychology, but he also is seen as like the original sin of psychology. So like the psychology professors do a real disservice in not teaching him uh, well enough. And then the other major disservice that psychology professors uh, uh, commit is not teaching Carl Jung at all. Carl Jung is probably has the best um, uh, applicable explications of Nietzsche's thought of any other philosopher. 
Like, I mean, he clearly outlines how, I mean, he, you know, he, he, he wrote about, he has a famous book. I forget what it, what it's called. It's called the black book or the red book, which was basically just a book of his nightmares. And it's super famous. And apparently I've never read it, but like, it's one of the most anxiety inducing books ever. And he, I, I sent this book to Stratton, the, uh, the spoke Zarathustra Jung read that book and it apparently gave him like the worst anxiety he ever had in his life. Yeah. And the point of that is I, I can't really explain the definitions of these words he used, but he was like, you know, in every man, there's a man's shadow. Yeah. And, and the problem with Nietzsche and but this was before they, nobody really knows, but everybody assumes he had syphilis. But this was before they assumed that, and they just thought he, they did not know why he went mad. But Carl Jung thought <clears throat> that Nietzsche went mad because he openly confronted his shadow. And um, uh, so Carl Jung... He he talks about the man Ion, A I O N, is the book I think he talks about this in, and the the book of his dreams. It's the black book or the red book. I forget what it's called. Um, but Carl Jung was because so many people. I'm sorry, I ramble. I forget the question you asked. But let, let me say, let me say, let me say one thing. Uh, so many people. Uh, think they, uh, or so many people recognize Nietzsche, or so many people see things that Nietzsche said and say, hey, that's right, or that's true, and they adopt it. Even if they don't know if it's Nietzsche's or if they read it in Nietzsche. So, like, either they get it from a secondhand or a first-hand source, you know. Uh, but then it's it's like Freud, you know, people work under this individual's presuppositions, but they, uh, if you bring up the name, they're like, oh, yeah, that dude's stupid. It's like, well, man, like 60% of the foundation of the ideas that you're explicating are were laid by this guy you just called stupid. So, you know, you might want to, take a step back and like recognize the lineage of the thought that you're exploring, you know? Uh, and I, I think Nietzsche, like, man, Nietzsche was like one of the first guys, maybe uh, like uh, I mentioned him a minute uh, earlier, Kierkegaard, maybe other than Kierkegaard or Max Stirner, Nietzsche is like the first guy that adequately described the modern or postmodern condition. And it's like he's he's invaluable. And the people after him, like I was telling this to you the other day, David, you know, Heidegger and being in time. Like I was saying that I don't think Mises could have wrote even I don't think Mises knew about Heidegger. I'm sure he knew about him, but I don't know if he because they were both Germanic, but I don't I, he probably never read being in time. 
but he wrote human action in a post being in time world. So I don't think that that human action could have come uh, about without being in time because being in time literally affected everything in the the western uh canon uh after its publishing so uh Nietzsche is one of those characters so yeah you, you, you have to when you read him you're like you you see something you disagree with and you're like hey you know I never heard it put that way you know I guess I need to watch out for people putting it in less concrete terms uh, trying to convince me of X fact, you know, determinism being the most famous, or then you hear something that you do agree with, <clears throat> or you can uh, argue for, and y you're like, hey, you know, this guy outlines it in the broadest possible way, so there's n there's no other direct. After you read it, there's no other direction than than in than more concrete. So, you know, there are people that, that write things that are super concrete and they may be true, but there's nowhere to go from that. You know, that's kind of my problem with some of Rothbard's stuff. Like he, he's so logical in a good way and he's so right, but it's like, all right, you're right. Now what? You know, what? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So Nietzsche kind of does the opposite of that where he's like. He outlines the stuff in the broadest possible uh, terms. And so you can only, you can't get deeper. I guess you can, but you'd have to, like Deleuze kind of got deeper, but then he also was uh, just batshit crazy. Yeah. How deep, Cotton? Like talking inches, yeah. Yeah, oh, like, like, uh, like the Earth's mantle deep, you know, <laughs> like deep enough, you know. <laughs> Uh, but not too deep, you know, <laughs> but, uh, average, I'll say that average, you know, <laughs> but, uh, like, you know, he, he got, man, it takes, it takes a brilliant mind to go deeper. I'll say that. So like, that's something. So like people that may be, uh, not as brilliant as him can still make discoveries from his his work you know just by kind of working down where he like started at the top so then you gotta like it's rhizomatic like he he started at a certain point and then people explore the like the root system yeah. you know he uses gravity to his advantage exactly yeah. it's like a little drop of water running down a vine and you're not quite sure which direction it might go you know yeah 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 Great. Well, uh, I just have two final points and not questions, just kind of takeaways. Um, the two takeaways for me in the little research I did with Nietzsche was first, I want to kind of distinguish politics from law, right? Because a lot of the time politics and law get lumped together into one thing. And that's not always the case. I mean, you know, we have law that arises from custom, common law, you know, judges making rulings. That's not politics. That's not voting. That's not legislation. And that's a way for law to arise. So when Nietzsche goes rails against democracy and he kind of rails against politics, one of the things he talks about is that law and politics take people away from their more creative, productive endeavors. They're caring more about, 
you know, yeah. uh, 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 getting elected or other things, and it keeps people from doing actually productive things. And I think that's an absolute truth when it comes to politics, but not when it comes to law. And I think that that's an important thing that I want our listeners to walk away with is that politics and law are not the same thing. In fact, politics is antithetical to law, to actual justice and true law. So that's one of the things that, that I kind of gleaned. It was like, I'm agreeing with Nietzsche, but yeah. also disagreeing with him at the same time. And that's like the key yeah. with Nietzsche. The, you get those little nuggets. Which I right? want to jump in real quick, Dave. And that's something I feel like we've kind of sh- stressed to our listeners with our talks about the Supreme Court and the culture wars. You know, just talking back on our earlier episodes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And 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 the last point I want to make is on the determinism point and and what I was saying before how I don't think determinism matters and I, I honestly this might be a really good paper topic for me to work on in the future at at some point how even in a deterministic world we should still have justice and 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 you know punishment for for crimes and torts. Uh I think that that's that, that's a really interesting idea because because you know, like we were talking about before, the the epistemology, the kind of Kantian epistemology that I take with even if determinism is real, we could never know. And and so yeah. free will might be a free will might be a might be a a necessary illusion to our cognitive processes. Yeah. And if it is a necessary illusion to our cognitive processes, then our cognitive processes are what make us human. So free will has to be ingrained into the institutions we yeah. have in society because even if it's not true, it's epistemologically true, quote unquote. Yeah, yeah. Historically, people like society works a lot better when people work under the idea that they have th- free will than when they don't. So, like, even if it doesn't exist, it makes sense to believe it exists. So, exactly. again, it doesn't matter. Because it's, it's true in the epistemological sense. In the yeah. sense of, we really can't know. All we know is that people act on the actions they have. And so that's just the default. That's that, There's just a wall there. We just hit a brick wall between metaphysics and epistemolo- epistemology where we just have to say, to go any farther leads us to... Well, it leads us to Marxism, you know, yeah. the belief that we can know everything. And it leads us to it leads us to Keynesianism and, and the idea that we can just tweak levers in the economy and make people do yeah. certain things or change these change laws. Change nature. Right. To incentivize different things. And that's just that's that's completely antithetical to the entire idea of law, I think. So, uh, Stratty, you got one final thing you want to say? Yeah, I did have one quick question about um, Nietzsche for cotton. So, Cotton, I know you really do seem to know a lot about this guy, so I want to ask, like, let me see an impression of him. Uh, <laughs> Let's hear it for the podcast. Well, like, the best, uh, dude, I'm growing out my mustache. Look, I, I was, I was going to say, I, I kind of like it. I like the look. Thank you, because when we, like, when I was at Mises, <laughs> I, I was trying to do the beard, but, like, uh, under my bottom lip, I just cannot grow hair. Yeah. If I could grow, and then... Like I have hair on my cheeks, but it's blonde, so oh. you just can't see it. Yeah. So I can't do a beard. So what I did since I got back was like I worked with a little scruff on my face, and then I'm just letting the mustache go. And I've trimmed it a couple of times, so it's not as long as it could be. But like I'm gonna let it. I'm gonna let it lie, and I'm gonna see you know how big it can get. I don't think I can, dude. One time I had a tweet that got like 70 likes Yeah, that I said, Nietzsche was just chilling and then was like, hey, I'm going to grow a whole ass head of hair on my <laughs> upper lip. 
like that like at the end of his life that dude's mustache was was wild did you but, see did you see the pictures of, of him in his youth when he didn't yeah. have a mustache like Dude, he looked is, like Damien in is, uh, Omen. It is so weird how much a mustache changes a dude's look. Damon, yeah. Because you see him without a mustache, and you you would never guess that it was him. It yeah. is so weird. But nobody knows what he sounded like, so I, I can't. So come I, on, come up with some like hipster comedy. Uh, you like you like turtlenecks? You know you're a hipster. Come on. I like what? You, you like those turtleneck sweaters? Turtlenecks? Dude, that's not hipster. That's James Bond. The best oh, time talking about? to wear a striped sweater. Yeah, dude. <laughs> yeah, dude. Stratton hates uh, SpongeBob. Oh, no. Dude, what are you talking about? I yeah, love, I'm, I'm a SpongeBob, SpongeBob lover. Action. I don't know what I, Stratton's <laughs> problem is, but I'm a SpongeBob I, lover. I don't. I, I liked when you when you did the when you did the turtleneck uh, the four photos right. Or, or post your best turtleneck photos or something. And then I just sent you four pictures of Bundy. <laughs> like walking in handcuffs with the turtleneck on. And I'm just like, yeah, turtlenecks oh, yeah, are dude. great, bro. <laughs> BDE. What are you going to do Bro, something it? that used to fuck me up was my girlfriend told me I look like Ted Bundy. No. And like, that's not someone you want to look like, dude. Like, what the hell? No. <laughs> Hey, but chicks find him good looking. So yeah, yeah. like, all right, all right, all right. If somebody says like, "Hey, you look like a sexy serial killer," what part of that statement are you going to pay more attention to? Yeah. You know, true. Like, I think right. it's better to be like, "Hey, she just said I'm sexy." Yeah, you know. <laughs> what 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 if some girls like? Oh man, you look like Saddam Hussein, baby. That turns me on. <laughs> Or like you look like Adolf Hitler, baby. You're like mm. fuck them towers, dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hit me like you did them towers, baby. <laughs> You're like I just hate New York. I don't have any, you know, ideological issues. I just hate New York. Yeah. He's like, come on, baby, hit it twice. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think we're gonna have to end it there. Cotton, thanks for coming on. Anything you want to say before we uh, head out? Plugs or whatever? Yeah. So uh, thank y'all for having me. And yeah. uh, check me of out. Of course, on, dude. Check me out on Twitter at uh, Cottonarchist. Uh, I got it pretty popping over there. Yes. And uh, you can search on all the major podcatchers or podcasting apps. Uh, Dissecting Liberty. Me and my co-host Liberty Zero have a pretty good show. Uh, I don't know when this is gonna be uploaded, but uh, probably I'm 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 shooting for a week after we release the one with Solomon, so probably about a week after Christmas. Okay, so can can I say what the date is today? Yes. Yeah. So today's the twenty fourth. Uh, this coming Sunday, we're gonna be releasing uh, an episode I did with David. So uh, that's going to be. I'm waiting for my calendar app to load now. But uh, that's going to be on the 27th of December, so it's going to be out already. So make sure to listen to that. Uh, yeah, follow us on Twitter at Dissecting Libby with one B. Uh, yeah, so just right. follow just follow my Twitter account. That's all that really matters.